Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. After rising tensions, Chinese and American senior officials held five exchanges in just a month. Could this mean establishing channels for better coordination to bring the relationship back on track? And it's China again. We'll look at the meltdown in Sri Lanka and what's really behind the crisis. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you live from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Chinese State Councillor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi met U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Bali on Saturday, the fifth high-level bilateral interaction in a month. Wang Yi said there is serious deviation in the U.S. perspectives of the world and China in the China-U.S. history, interests and competition and called for establishing channels for better coordination. What does the high frequency mean? Can these talks prevent further freefall of ties or is it a futile exercise before U.S. midterm elections? I'm pleased to be joined in Beijing by retired senior Colonel Joe Bo who is now a senior fellow at the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University and from Iviv, Ukraine by Klaus Laris, a European Affairs Analyst and Distinguished Professor of History and International Relations at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So a bit of a background here. We have seen frequent interactions between senior officials from China and the U.S. since June. On June the 10th, Chinese State Council and Defense Minister Wei Fenghe had his first face-to-face -face meeting with the U.S. Sec Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. On the 13th of June, Yang Jiechi, China's top diplomat, met U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan in Luxembourg. On Tuesday last week, Chinese Vice Premier Liu He held a video call with U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Two days later, Chinese General Li Zuocheng, who is member of China's Central Military Commission, or the CMC, and chief of the CMC's Joint Staff Department, spoke with U.S. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley via video link. So, Mr. Joe, why such a high frequency of meetings? How do you read it? I think there are different reasons for such high-level exchanges. Uh, uh, in terms of the military exchanges, uh, uh, General Wei Fengho just went to Shangri-La dialogue to have uh, uh, his uh, talks, so uh, he take, uh, 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 he just used this opportunity for his talk with his counterpart. And General Milley actually called General Wei Fengho through the hotline uh, for exchanges. So this demonstrated that uh, this kind of uh, uh, exchanges, especially at the military level, are badly needed because both sides talk about the guardrails both sides uh, are uh, just uh, wishing for the so-called uh, uh, crisis management measures. So it is crucially important for senior officers at their level to maintain kind of regular contact. But for other levels of talks, of course, it is also very good because uh, such kind of frequency of exchanges just give people a sense of relief not only to Chinese, not only to Americans, but to the rest of the world, because we too are the two largest economy in the world. If the people of the world see two countries talking to each other, at least 
this is a kind of sense of relief, if not comfort. Uh, who is more desperate, according to your senses? Do you feel there is a mutual will to work things out, or is one party uh, appearing more desperate to get things straight, straightened out, Mr. Zhou? That's a very good question. I won't describe it as who is desperate. But if you observe the policies of the two countries, you would uh, say with confidence that China's policy is uh, more consistent compared to Americans' one. American policy basically has taken a U-turn since Donald Trump, who described China as a primary strategic competitor. And Biden's policy is basically a follow-up of Trump's policy, which even, who even describes this relationship as one of extreme competition. But I have seen something positive in, as the, in change of attitude, at least from reading American documents. For example, in February, Americans in the Pacific strategy uh, would only uh, handpick two areas of cooperation, that is uh, climate change and non-proliferation. But in Secretary Blinken's China talk, he certainly has mentioned a few more areas of cooperation. I think that is most telling in that it tells that the United States has realized that eventually, still, they would have to come to right. cooperation with China. Right. Well, um, Klaus, now Wang Yi met with Anthony Blinken on the sidelines of G20 foreign ministers meeting. Are we seeing a stronger will on both sides, or at least on the side of the United States to work things out? Or uh, are they still talking over each other? Well, a little bit of both, I would say. Uh, it is always difficult for uh, partners, from uh, diplomatic partners from very different countries to talk to each other and make sense of each other and come to fruitful uh, outcomes. But it is a good sign that the two sides have begun talking to each other in a very intensive way, much more intensive than before. I agree that uh, under Donald Trump's administration, Chinese-American relations plummeted, were less than good, to put it mildly. And Biden is uh, someone who wants to cooperate. He cooperates increasingly with his European allies, but he also wants to reach out to, for, uh, to, uh, to China, for example. And this is a good thing. One of the reasons why is bilateral, that uh, the tension in Chinese-American relations it has increased, particularly over Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific, but also trade relations are much less good than they ought to be. And secondly, I think it is a war Russia is conducting in Ukraine, which was decisive for uh, the United States and China trying to come together and to talk to each other, because that war is a geopolitical crisis which affects every country in the world, whether you are near to Ukraine or not so uh, close to Ukraine. Um, there is a worldwide food crisis, a worldwide energy crisis, and China is affected and the United States are affected, of course. So if the two major countries get together to talk about that, this makes a lot of sense. And that is what we have seen, at least the beginning of that. Mm. Outcomes are not quite clear, mm -hmm. but hopefully there will be some fruitful outcome in the future. Speaking of uh, military conflict, the meeting between Chinese General Li Zuocheng and his uh, U.S. counterpart General Milley has drawn actually quite some attention. Uh, according to the Chinese readout, General Li called on the U.S. to stop military collusion with China's Taiwan region. Mr. Zhou, from your military background, how do you see uh, the reasons behind this meeting that uh, General Milley called his 
Chinese counterpart, and what could be the significance of this interaction? Well, I think there is a kind of a genuine worry from the United States that China is changing the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, while China, I mean, mainland is pointing finger at the U.S. side to say that it's the U.S. that is changing the status quo. Well, putting this aside, I would say that uh, President Biden has actually talked. Uh, uh, basically, he gaffed about the Taiwan issue for three times within nine months. Well, the question is, could someone unintentionally talk about the same thing for three times? So it is not quite possible. So in that regard, I believe American policy basically is making a subtle change. That is from the so-called strategic ambiguity to the so-called strategic clarity. Because in the past, American policy is characterized with the so-called strategic ambiguity, which actually is a kind of confidence on the American part. The United States is competent whatever the, the, the mainland will do or whatever the Taiwan Authority will do, they can actually put things under control. But this kind of so-called strategic clarity, which was initially proposed by Richard Haas, American scholar, actually shows Americans is short of confidence because they believe in the Western Pacific, yeah, that the military balance is actually tilting toward the, the favor of the mainland. Therefore, I think uh, the United States is a bit worried about the situation. But uh, what I want to say is that uh, China hasn't changed its policy over uh, taking use of force only as a last resort. And this is the best uh, demonstrated in China's defense budget this year. Because China's defense budget was actually announced after the Russia-Ukraine war, and it is still, as it was in decade, less than two percent. That demonstrates China's confidence about itself and about the environment and about China's intention of peaceful unification. Still, Klaus, do you think after this meeting between the two general chiefs of staff, or two equivalent, um, the chances of miss? calculated conflict over Taiwan could be reduced because the United States has repeatedly stressed that it does not seek a conflict with China and the worry has been a miscalculated conflict that will lead to military conflict between the two sides. So after this meeting, do you think at least such chances are being managed? Yes, certainly better than before. We don't know what really went on behind the scenes. And of course, we know about the public speeches both men gave, which were on the whole quite satisfactory. But behind the scenes and uh, over dinner, they will have talked much more intensively, much more secretly than we will have found out so far. So and I would assume that uh, cooperation in the military sphere and uh, making sure that nothing happens by default and by accident will have been talked about. It is true that Biden has uh, three times in the last few uh, last couple of years talked about Taiwan, but he has also emphasized that American policy is a one China policy and non-recognition of an independent uh, Taiwan has not changed. And I think we should believe that because the United States has no interest 
in uh, uh, recognizing an independent Taiwan. It fully recognizes the one China policy, but it is concerned that tension in the Indo-Pacific, particularly over Taiwan, is increasing. It looks at uh, concern, with great concern, uh, at increasing flights, for example, by uh, Chinese fighter planes into the defense identification zone of Taiwan. And it wonders, does China intend to do something about the Taiwan uh, issue? Right. And it is and it would like to tell the Chinese, its Chinese partners, that nothing should be done, mm. that the status quo, as it has worked out so well for the last few decades over Taiwan, that that uh, status quo uh, should not be changed. Okay, very briefly, um, Senior Colonel Joe Bo, do you have uh, any reaction to uh, the, the uh, Klaus's version of the American perception of the situation? Are such worries warranted? Well, I think he raised a very good question. For me, it is, should we really believe that the United States is still sticking to one China policy? I believe they will always talk about one China policy, but the content actually has changed subtly. This is, this is what I mentioned, because if you look at the arms sale to Taiwan, if you uh, see they send uh, uh, military troops uh, to train Taiwan troops secretly, this was re revealed. Uh, by uh, the Washington Post, how could we have confidence in this, the so-called one-China okay. policy? That is my question. Hmm. I think that's the question on the minds of a lot of people as well. We'll see whether any concrete action or concrete changes will come out of these series of meetings. But many thanks to Senior Colonel Joe Bo and Professor Klaus Laras joining us for this discussion. We're going to take a short break and when we come back, Sri Lanka's president has fled the country and the United Nations is calling for dialogue for a smooth transition to power. What caused the new flashpoint and what exactly is China's role? We'll take a short break and we'll be back right after that. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Thousands of protesters stormed and occupied Sri Lanka's presidential palace and the prime minister's residence over the weekend. The president has fled the country and the United Nations is calling for talks for peaceful power transition. Public discontent was simmering after an economic crisis led to food, fuel and other dire shortages. How did things reach this point? Is China to blame? And what are the regional repercussions? I'm pleased to be joined from New Delhi by Atu Anija, editor of the Indian Narrative, and from Beijing, Ye Hailing, director of the Center of South Asia Studies at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Gentlemen, welcome to the point. So the International Monetary Fund mentions several factors that led to Sri Lanka's economic meltdown. For instance, uh, sinking uh, foreign reserves, rising global food and oil prices, and a severe uh, balance of payment pressure. Mr. Ye, what factors do you think played a direct role to the current crisis? Sri Lanka economic uh, crisis is based on the domestic situation and the external situation. For a very long time, actually, Sri Lanka is a country who borrowed money for their living. Actually, they always suffered from the long-term double uh, deficit crisis. Uh, one deficit is the a shortcoming of the tax and the income of the government is a financial crisis. And the second is a trade imbalance. So such kind of the uh, double uh, deficit trap make Sri Lanka a very vulnerable situation uh, considering the economy uh, issues. And for the external reason is that the 
due to the pandemic impact and also the reason the Russian-Ukraine military conflicts uh, make the oil and the uh, food price go very high. So make this vulnerable uh, country like Sri Lanka suffer a lot is uh, external reason uh, external reason to ma uh, make the uh, so-called the national bankrupt of Sri Lanka. So we can't say it's the only one factor mm. or one reason make this country suffer a lot. It's uh, a big picture and we need to admit it's not only at present right now the situation make this, uh, the, the whole, life, uh, whole, whole, whole country suffer. But also, they have the based on the long history. Actually, for the last half century, Sri Lanka is a country who loaned the money for their economic development and the people living. That's a very uh, essential problem. So basically, you're saying it's a myriad of factors which have been brewing for quite some time. Artu, what's your take? What do you think have, or what do you think uh, are the factors that have aggravated an apparent economic crisis to a total meltdown in the country? Uh, well, you, you see, one of the major revenue earners for Sri Lanka was tourism. And uh, with the coming of COVID, I think that was one industry which almost got completely wiped out. The other thing was the kind of policies which this government followed. And uh, for example, uh, they went on agriculture, they went completely organic. Uh, and as a result, your food production declined big time. Uh, China, uh, sorry, uh, Sri Lanka was a major exporter of tea, for example. That dried up. Plus, because of the COVID situation, your external markets itself were, were impacted. So these were some of the very important domestic factors uh, which which led to uh, the current uh, meltdown, apart from the factors which you other guests mentioned. So we have this combination of factors uh, which uh, has uh, hit them. Uh, Sri Lanka does need some structural changes. I remember when I was in Beijing, we had... Uh, uh, then Prime Minister and the current Prime Minister Vikramasinghe coming over to Beijing. And one of uh, uh, the main pitches which he made during that visit was that Sri Lanka can be turned into a services sector, into a financial sector like the, between Dubai and Singapore. Those were imaginative kind of policies which needed to have been implemented long back. Sri Lanka is also very close to the international sea lanes which are going. And, you know, another uh, transshipment point, for example, uh, from from uh, Africa and down, if you go towards the the uh, the Southeast Asia, you would have it ideally located to do the services. Something which Jabal Ali does for Dubai. So there were various because of its small size, it has to go more innovatively and into into services as well, apart from uh, tourism and uh, uh, and agriculture, tea, etc. I think these structural changes needed to have been done much earlier, which were not done, and we have the current sort of perfect storm coming into Sri Lanka, creating the present mess. China has announced 500 million yuan or 74 million US dollars worth of emergency humanitarian assistance and also 10,000 metric tons of rice, the first batch of which has, uh, has been delivered on June the 28th. And the rice is expected to provide daily meals to 1.1 million school children for at least six months. And China said it will continue to do its utmost to help Sri Lanka's socioeconomic development support its economic recovery and improve people's lives. Mr. Ye, uh, however, at the same time, we're hearing some media politicizing China's humanitarian support or assistance, calling it a kind of a geopolitical competition that China is engaged in. Basically, they're implying that whoever donates more will exert more influence. What is your response to such a narrative? 
such kind of the accusation from the Western media, we already heard a lot. Actually, uh, they were basically they were totally ignore the humanitarian assistance provided from China to Sri Lanka and only focusing on the debt issue. And funny thing is that if China provide assistance to Sri Lanka financially or some uh, more pragmatically. They will accuse China that China want to play the geopolitical game. And if China stand by, they will say China is a cold-blooded uh, debt owner, only sitting, sitting back and see Sri Lanka suffering. So what we should do? No matter what we did, in, uh, according to the Western media, that, that definitely is wrong. So it doesn't matter what we did. It's only a matter they are Chinese, so that they, they definitely have some plot or conspiracy behind them. So I think... It doesn't matter what the Western media accused China, and only matters what how the Sri Lanka people to see, and currently situation and how Sri Lanka rate the Chinese assistance assistance to their their people and their children. And luckily, we found out the most of the Sri Lanka people they clearly know what's the problem behind their national uh, financial crisis. Mm. And I don't think the for the ordinary Sri Lanka people, the Chinese assistance will be the of the Greeks. As expected, um, some were quick to point fingers at China. Basically, when I saw news about what happened in Sri Lanka, I said, okay, someone is going to use this. Uh, but there are some statistics actually from the Department of External Resources of Sri Lanka, which shows that the island nation's international market borrowing accounts for almost half of its uh, foreign debt. And the Asian Development Bank has uh, higher debt than China, as you can see, accounting for 13% on the lower left hand, uh, lo lower left corner, China accounting for some 10% uh, at most, which is very similar to that of Japan, but uh, obviously Japan is not getting any flank. Uh, Atul, what's your response to the singling out of China as the prime culprit here? Well, uh, any kind of uh, movement, and this in this case you find, I, I see it as a people's movement, what's happening in Sri Lanka. It needs to have a, have an enemy. It needs, it needs to have a focus. Now, what's happened is that what is happening on the streets is against the uh, Rajapaksha clan, especially the Rajapaksha brothers, who have had been close to China. So I think that way China comes indirectly into the picture. Uh, because of these, uh, the leaders, the leadership, which has now been offset by Sri Lanka. I think that's one factor. The second thing which has happened is, I think, about the uh, perception about the Humban Tota port, uh, that this probably was an unviable port which was invested into, and that becomes a symbol of what China has been doing in, in, in Sri Lanka. So, so as a result, uh, in the perception war, uh, I think China has taken a hit in what's happening in Sri Lanka. You mentioned facts which are there, which is which is which is also true. But at the same time, uh, these the Kotabaya brothers, especially it happens when the time of the liberation war against the Tamil Tigers, where Chinese help uh, the senior Rajapaksha, that is Mahinda Rajapaksha. I think from then onwards, China has been a major player. But I think the way these investments went, I'm not talking of borrowings. I'm talking of these projects which were taken. They have become uh, Colombo port city, uh, Hambantota. I think these have become sort of symbols and uh, 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 sort of uh, focal points on which there is a Western media campaign, we all know about it, which has used this. Uh, so I think uh, from the Chinese perspective, we need to be a little 
uh, also careful about the perception war. It's, it's part of uh, the, the overall strategy when you are going into a third country. I think it's also important to keep in mind sensitivities of countries like India, which have a deep historical linkages with, with Sri Lanka and consult each other, which I remember we, we had the China-India plus uh, formulation uh, some time ago before the Chennai summit of President Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Modi. I think we need to revisit that as well and, and move into these geographies with far greater sensitivity and dialogue, uh, knowing fully well that the Western media will use any kind of a, uh, occasion uh, to, to, mm. to, to sort of counter uh, uh, Chinese movement abroad. Okay. Mr. Ye, what's your reaction? Do you think there is a lesson to be picked up for, uh, for China here or either in uh, investing in Sri Lanka or extending loans to Sri Lanka or in its relationship vis-a-vis -vis India um, without being adequately sensible to the feelings or actually while dealing with Sri Lanka without being adequately sensitive to the feelings of India. What are your reactions? Well, firstly, we should need to uh, admit that it's not, not necessary to uh, in, involve the so-called geopolitical campaign between China and India. Actually, China and India in Sri Lanka case, they can launch the very close cooperation to hype this co our uh, two, uh, these two major countries could work together to help Sri Lanka out of this crisis, that's for sure. And it's also the, ben the, the common interest of the China and the India. So that's the first thing. So we need to think in the another direction of the so-called so geopolitical campaign. Secondly, just like the author correctly point out, perception is quite important, at least as a, same important as the reality. China not only shouldn't only focusing on what we did or what we, we didn't do and what's the fact. China need to enhance their capacity to try to tell the world what's the real story of the Sri Lanka and the Chinese BRI. It's not only let the West media to control the voice and the shape, the common perspective about the, any case, not only Sri Lanka. For Sri Lanka, it's very easy to point out for the last 10 years, the Chinese debt is remain 5 billion US dollars, not increased. So definitely that means only 10% foreign debt not the main reason of the Sri Lanka crisis. But the point is, according to the West media, you never read such kind of the data and stories. So that's the point that China need to fight against the so-called perception war launched by the Western media. And this war not only makes China, China suffer, but also will make, make the Sri Lanka suffer, the Indian people suffer, the whole third world people suffer. So that's the all it's also our, our common task mm. to try to tell the world this world is not like the Western media. Try to tell us this world has their own reason and their own truth. What they try to make us believe. We have just an, enough time to stop it there. Many thanks to Atu Anija and Ye Hailing joining us for this very important discussion. Let our own voices be heard. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lushin, as you as usual. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lushin in Beijing. You've got The Point. <laughs>